so the first thing this is recorded after actually I've made the whole thing and I wanted to apologize I don't know if you like the smooth jazz sounds that I usually put in the background but apparently I can't add them after I've recorded them and press the their you know this is um permanent button so I apologize that you don't hear the smooth sounds of jazz in the background of these uh of lecture three so I'll remember to not do that for lecture four all right. Greetings, this is your professor Jennifer Williams and welcome to lecture number three in Intro to African American Studies. Uh, I want to say thank you for hanging with me for the next, for the last three weeks and the next more than three weeks um so this lesson is going to be about etymology and so on one of the kind of like uh, the bright space area i said you know a rose by any other name would smell as sweet which as you know is a romeo and juliet quote um and this is basically kind of what this uh lecture is going to be covering uh, ideas about naming, ideas about language, ideas about words, and all how that connects to African American studies, as well as just continuing this idea of how do we uh, look at and actually like analyze our own philosophy, our own ways of knowing, our own worldviews, and how do we start the process of essentially changing what those things are. So in this first slide, there's I'm being funny. I like, you know, comics and things like that. So it's a joke on Star Wars a little bit. And they're saying, you know, Han Solo is the captain of the Millennium Falcon. And it's a sci-fi, you know, arena. And there's all these other, you know, creatures and things in the world. But a falcon, as we would understand it, is kind of an English term for a bird um, in the United States on the planet Earth. So why would they know what a falcon is? I know that's the joke. But it also goes to kind of the relativity of words, right? A falcon in, as I said, planet Earth a long, long time ago or near ago um, may not be a concept, yet that's the name of the ship that is popular uh, both in our imagination as well as what's happening in their world. But it's kind of absurd, you know? Uh, so this kind of connects a little bit to reflection number one. What does your name mean to you? What does your name mean to your parents? I assume those things may be separate. Um, what would make you change your name? Like what circumstances, be it gender changing, or just you feel that your name doesn't connect to who you are as a person? As well as what would you do um, if or when people consistently call you something that's not your name? So even things that are very like demeaning, or uh, complimentary, or just people just don't know who you are. Um, one of the things that kind of comes up for a lot of women as they're aging is people start calling them ma'am. And there's like, you know, commentary how some women feel uncomfortable at that, about that because age, or at least older women aging is a part of kind of a social negative in United States society. So depending on what type of woman you are, as well as what cultural group you're from but there tends to be kind of at least popular culture commentary on the fact that someone starts call or has younger people call an older woman ma'am 
that you tend to feel negative. So things like that. How does that make you feel as that's reflection number one? So when we start thinking about African-American studies and language, I don't just mean like language like English, Spanish, French, those kind of things. Actually, you're kind of looking at uh, language, particularly looking at words and how words are used, um, as well as context of words. So it's not just, you know... Africana studies and English or the English language, but how words are examined. And basically, just as we're all talking about how words connect to ideology. So African American studies, one of the things that happens in this discipline is just ex- as it examines the historical realities of Africana people over time, because that's like the overall general thing that happens. It also is an attempt to teach or at least to uh, make known, make visible a different ideology of how to perceive that history as well as how to perceive other phenomena, other events and experiences in the world. And well, as well as kind of its more uh, relevant and more practical uh, part of its uh, mission is how to act with that knowledge. So one of these ways is through language or language usage and how people conceptualize how they use their language in order to convey information and how other people uh, interpret that information that's being conveyed. So this goes back to the kind of the recap of worldview. Worldview, as we already gone over in the previous lecture, is that philosophy of life, ideology, lens, perspective, all these worlds are basically the same thing and the intersections um, of language, culture, social constructs that we use to make sense of the world. And so in this time, instead of those kind of, well, mental and social constructs are part of it, but we really want to focus on language use here. And then the way that which a person or views, feels, thinks, and even talks about the world. Again, that talks to this definition. So language and it's not necessarily a cyclical kind of thing going on here, but when we think about language, and once again, I'm focusing on more of the words and terms and the implicit meanings that people put on certain words and terms, not our practice of talking, uh, these kind of symbols, not necessarily that, but is part of it. So language is kind of a practicing of our worldview, the way we talk about something and are describing certain objects and are naming things, identifying things, using these, you know, arbitrary in a way symbols for it. So I guess I'm also saying language and words as well as the written word, not just the spoken word. Um, And it's practicing our worldview because when we describe something consistently, Um, we're practicing language and so we're practicing defining what those things mean to ourselves as well as what uh, we describe them or how we describe them to others and so language is the practice of that right and our worldview is definitely impacted by our language but this gets kind of like fuzzy and people kind of have uh they they more so make this a theory that our worldview is impacted by our language Language is definitely impacted by worldview, but the idea that our worldview is impacted by our language is a little bit more on fuzzy territory. I say that there may be some um, indication that if you start to change your language, then you may be able to change your worldview. Um, But this is probably more 
going generally the idea of once you start changing any practice that you do that kind of connects to the maintenance of worldview because language maintains a worldview so anything that you do to change that process that kind of direct one-to-one relationship between who you are and how you see the world or how you act and how you see the world um will definitely change so worldview when we change your language when we start to you know focus on what these words mean and how we use it then we can at least like well then our worldview may have already been changed and we're just showing it through our language so that's why I'm like that part's probably fuzzy but it definitely has some uh, probably relevance so in the second reflection uh, watch this TED Talk. Uh, it's my local TED Talk, not like the big TED Talk, so it doesn't have the captions. I apologize about that. Um, but watch this TED Talk and just provide a general reflection of what the speaker is saying. She's really trying to point out the idea for her in the nonprofit world of how language uh, or how people use language and, you know, have implicit meaning into it and definitely are impacted by what terms people use in order to describe uh and for her she was focusing on crime as well as uh um non-profit world serving people kind of stuff so provide a general reflection of this ted talk and then i'm kind of going back to what we were kind of getting at in class about the word minority and i know you probably have been thinking about it since we talked about it in class but I really want to know what your opinion is. And we can do this on more of an individual level. It doesn't have to be a group level here. So what is your opinion about that term? When you heard the word minority, how did it make you feel? How did it like resonate within you? Do you even use that term normally to describe a certain group of people? And if, you know, whatever side you were on, if you do not consider yourself a minority, if you do not use the term, just even think about what do you think about someone who will be called that? How do you think they will feel if that term is applied to them? And to make this like, I really want to like get at that, right? Because we're saying both a group is a minority and that's kind of one way we use the term. We use a group as a minority as kind of an adjective, but we also do the minorities and we make it a noun and there may be a distinction you know there may be a, using a group is a minority can be probably a positive way but in that slight differentiation when we go from adjective to noun that the minorities may be a negative or may feel a little bit different instead of you know describing the numerical um, reality versus claiming that as a identifier so I'm giving kind of a lot of context to this. I'm not trying to sway you, I promise. I'm trying to, this is Jennifer opinion, if you can call it. And then for reflection to see, how do you feel about using the term majorities then? Because if we're saying minority, or at least as a class, it kind of seemed to be, there may be some positive of using the word minority because it's a very good descriptor. But like I'm saying, that kind of second step of going from adjective to noun. So if we're saying there are a group that is the majority, do we call them the majorities? And then why hasn't that come into usage? As far as I understand, no one's saying the majorities as a group. So why don't we use that term? Um, but we do use the minorities. 
So two words that I will probably use in order to describe certain concepts. I'll always do my synonym thing because I don't want people just to be like, she keeps saying this word and I don't know what this word means. So nomenclature and etymology. Nomenclature and etymology. So nomenclature, I'm giving you a very simple definition, is the choosing of names for things. And etymology is kind of the formal study of the origins of words and how they're used in history and in the present. So nomenclature is kind of that whole discourse dialogue that we all do about choosing names for things. Why do we call a duck a duck? Why do we call a rose a rose? Why do we call African-Americans African-Americans? That's all nomenclature. And etymology is kind of, once again, the research, the history, the bringing all that kind of social science humanities discussion into why names are chosen. In African-American studies itself, uh, the practice of naming is definitely, it's not central in African-American studies, but it's definitely one of those areas that gets a lot of play, as well as how people write African-American studies as scholars, as researchers. They tend to have certain practices that are different from mainstream or mainstream journalism or other scholars. One of these like a small example is the difference between black with a lowercase b and black with an uppercase b. And a lot of people in Africana studies and African American studies tend to use the uppercase b um, in order to talk about black people saying that this is a group identity and not just an adjective as well as black being associated with a color and trying to give those distinguishing factors. There's other reasons for the capital B versus the lowercase b, but if you look at some of the uh, essays that we are doing for this week, some people actually use the lowercase b as a way to describe themselves, but that tends to be, I think, a journalistic article versus in the more scholarly articles, people are probably using uppercase Bs or not even using the word black at all. So in the nomenclature of African-American studies, I also want to emphasize, and this is going to be all throughout the semester, that that identity, or at least not necessarily the identity, well, the identity itself, yes, is in flux, is always changing, um, but the naming is always changing as well. And I found a quote that's going to come up soon. Um, that we should you know, look at too as well. But the people change who they are over time. They have new information and decide to um, add and change who, what their names are due to the new experiences and new information that they gained. And it kind of becomes a public or very you know, open conversation going through newspapers, Twitter, now that we probably use in order to really like get at what a name or the name of the group is and should we accept certain names, should we not accept certain names. Um, if you look through Twitter as well as other social media forums and just generally in the media sphere, there's definitely a conversation of should people of color, quote unquote, be used as a term at all? And is it hiding um, certain identities and is it privileging identities that shouldn't be privileged? So there's another conversation there about these of people of color, even though people of color currently has also been deemed one of the more safe terms in order to describe what that group of people could be described, people who are non-white, basically, nomenclature.
So etymology, as I said, is more just a study, more, you know, more formal kind of conversation. Africana studies scholars examine the usage of words and how they came to be, that whole thing being etymology. A lot of this etymo- etym- etymological work um, is for the N-I-G-G-A word because people are still trying to understand why that is used in popular media as well as, and this is a class distinction, why it's tended to be used by lower class African Americans as well as how it got, uh, oh man, I'm forgetting the word as I'm talking to you. It got translated or uh, it went across the waters. You know what that word is. It's a economics term that I'm just going to worry about later. And so that system, how it is in Africa, people are using N-I-G-G-A, China, other places are using that term and people are trying to really like understand the, you know, is it bad still? It was bad at a certain point in time. Is it bad now? That is an etymological research that really does um, take up a kind of larger chunk of Africana studies that I wouldn't at least personally think it should, but does. So the cultural identity of African Americans, um, what some people call black people, what some people might call Africana people, like some people might call people of African, African descent, African descent. It's always a matter of becoming. There's never just like one day everyone is this because once again, it's humanity. Humanity is always changing. And so the group, the cultural group, the ethnic group, the racialized identity is always being changed. How people are connecting with history, how current events um, are affecting a person or a group of people, it always changes. And so when we talk about the African-American studies or talk about African-American experiences over time, we definitely have to think of it as constantly becoming something. I don't know what that becoming always is. Sometimes we can't understand, you know, can't not understand it, but we can't uh, predict it. Um, we just know that it's changing. We have to remember that it's just focus on the fact that it's not static and that it's constantly in flux. The other, and this is more of these kind of what we're talking about, racialized issues. So once you are a raced person and people are constantly racing you as well as acting in racist manners towards you, um, you may all you may see yourself as another or as an other. So a person who is not the norm of a white and in our context, American person and internalizing the identity. So knowing that there is a dominant cultural narrative and that dominant cultural narrative in the United States is usually marked as white and that you are not that. And so the cultural identity of Africana people is that kind of um, oppositional relationship of like, I am who I am. I was raised by my parents. I live this life. I have these cultural norms, but society also is classifying me as this non-white entity and that has a meaning what that meaning is as i'm always saying changes over time but is usually in a negative um position against whiteness and so whiteness is norm whiteness is success whiteness is that and you as someone who is of african-american descent or african descent um are not that and so having to see words see yourself as that negation also, 
Um, and this is kind of what I already talked about, seeing yourself as the positive, being seeing yourself as connected to a group of others who have cultural similarities, who experience life and claim an identity that we would term African-American, African descent, Africana, Black, and finding comfort in being that identity and finding affinity, connection with others who claim that identity. And then the last one, and this is the one that I kind of personally connect to a little bit more, is seeing oneself as a political agent. And so, yes, I connect with my culture. Yes, I kind of have affinity with other people who are of African descent across global or globally. Um, But I also am reacting in a way to the oppressive systems and knowing that people who look like me, people who are coming from my background are experiencing institutionalized as well as individualized oppression. And so I use that kind of identity or at least that raced or racialized grouping and I find empowerment in having that kind of group identity or being grouped in that identity and I want to align with those people. And so I find that um, empowering to myself and working to act in order to destroy all systems that oppress all peoples. And that's where I kind of find myself. And so it's a cultural identity or maybe a political identity. Um, Sometimes you have parties based upon, you know, being black or being any other kind of what we would normally say a cultural group. But that political identity is, as I said, rooted in idea of destroying and destroying oppression as well as empowering others against oppression. So this is a quote from Stuart Hall. Stuart Hall is a black British cultural theorist. And so he tries to, once again, writes theories about how culture is enacted, particularly by people um, in the black Atlantic. The black Atlantic is kind of all the groups uh, who are connected to the Atlantic Ocean. So British Africa, as well as North, South, Central and Caribbean areas. So the cultural identity is not something, or sorry, cultural identity, it is something, not a mere trick of the imagination. It has real histories and histories have their real material and symbolic effects. The past continues to speak to us, but it's no longer addressed. It no longer addresses us as simple, factual past, since our relation to it has always been after the break. And after the break, he usually um, quantifies or identifies as being after kind of that initial European involvement in Africa. And so it's always constructed through memory, fantasy, narrative, and myth. So this goes back to kind of like everything we do as a social construct. But Jennifer, your professor, always says, even though things are socially constructed, they're constructed through all these kind of past experiences, histories, things that we have been told, not necessarily things that we experience, comma, and the things that we've personally experienced that other people are drawing from various areas, the past, myth, today. Um, And uh, how we, you know, kind of, use that amalgamation of things in order to create our current cultural identity, right? Which has real material effects. So even though it may be partially social construct, it may be connected to current experiences, 
it also has material um, effects. We are affected through our economic system, through our, you know, psychological systems, um, through our social systems, through education, through anything. It's still connected due to the cultural identity that was, you know, we were born with, we were born into, that we were raised with, that we've been socialized into, any of those or a mix of all um, connects to what our identity is. But this also goes back to names. So even though we have those groups, they do not necessarily have to be named anything. It could just be, I fit this category with this group of people. We all hang out together on weekends. But we like to have, you know, shorthands. We don't just want to always be like, well, I'm a human. My people were enslaved and they've gone through a lot of oppression over the years. And then here we are today. We usually want to call that something because, well, it might be interesting to have five minute discussions about your past in order to easily meet someone. But instead, we tend to do names. We tend to have identifiers in order to like quickly get to the point of where we're at. But we also understand that that's, you know, pregnant with meaning to just call someone a certain thing, particularly for people who are of African descent. So the name black itself or the term black. Um, oh, wait, going back. Sorry. The name of the group that has been raced as black. So black as a kind of opposite to whiteness or a people who have been um, treated in certain way with certain conditions placed upon them and how they form, you know, affinity with each other because of that oppression, as well as the cultural group. Um, Africans and those who have cultural foodways and cultural realities. Um, this has changed over time. It hasn't always, we haven't always used the term black, right? Um, so things in the past have been the term colored was a term for a while. Negro, black, African-American, person of color, minority, marginalized individual, all these things have been used in order to define the group. Some of them have been used by the people themselves. Some of them have been used by the dominant white uh, society in order to call them something, um, in order to define them in a certain way. Some of them, at least in the last three, person of color, minority, marginalized individuals have been connected to essentially a both from the people and from a white community conversation of how to politically correctly call that group and, you know, put resources, or at least they would say they put resources towards them um, in order to, you know, get at the racialized or racism that's going on in society. And so people of color, minority, marginalized individuals, um, all those names come into play. The other word, which I have put in quotes and I haven't explicitly said, and I won't explicitly say in this lecture, is the N-word, N-I-G-G-E-R, right? That word. And that word is, I'm appreciating the word here today, pregnant with um, meaning as well. The N-word over time, over history, has been used to, you know, demean, dehumanize people who have been raced as black and the n-word as I was saying kind of earlier at least it's 
iteration, how it's been changed to N-I-G-G-A has been also up for debate because people are like, well, if the group is calling themselves that, then shouldn't I be allowed to also call them that? And then we have a whole lot of things going on, right? But it's still a naming conversation. It's still the words, you know, the symbols themselves, we would say don't have meaning. Calling yourself it doesn't, you know, isn't just the only factor in who can call people whatever they can. And it's definitely person dependent, these words. Um, and if a large enough sample of people are like they do not wish to be called that word or if the context around that word is bad <laughs> to just be easy about it, then we find other words or we change words or we go back to another word. So these are all these kind of discussions that we have about words. And when we look at the word minority, right? And so I asked you that question a couple slides ago. Um, this is from an article that I just actually found today because I was trying to like gather some extra information about how to present this topic to you all. But this um, author says that the euphemism treadmill, so euphemism being kind of a positive word for something, and I'm butchering that definition. Please look it up on your own. But the euphemism treadmill um words going through kind of the cycle of being positive or negative and up and down from there shows that concepts right kind of always what we've been talking about in this class concepts not the words themselves not the basic symbols of an n and o da 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 right the words not the words are primarily in people's minds so the concepts are what come up so when you say dog you have a you know, perception of what a dog is in your mind, even though there's 50 million different species of dogs, but something comes to mind. So it's always the concept. And so when we give a concept a new name and a name becomes colored by the concept, the concept does not become freshened by the name, at least not for long. Names for minorities, this author used the word minority, will continue to change as long as people have negative attitudes towards them. So names for minorities will continue to change as long as people have negative attitudes toward them. That's an interesting um, claim that this individual has, right? That as long as there are negative views towards those groups that are race, those groups that are considered non-white, those groups that have, you know, oppression or are oppressed, um that basically kind of having a PC term for them is hard because it's usually always like involved, is always connected to the values of society. And if the values of society are still negative towards them, then it will be hard to see or name or identify, describe them in any other way. So that's why in the discipline of African-American studies, we definitely consider nomenclature. 
it has to be part of our conversation. And we also have to consider it strongly in our writing, in our research, and how we actually present things about African-American people, people of African descent, because we already, you know, we're very cognizant, we're very focused on, or at least I would say people in this discipline <laughs> are focused on how words affect people of color, how words affect Africana people. And these words have harming effect, right? These words have harming effect for everyone in society because the concepts are already harming people. So the words just are basically adding, you know, fire, uh, adding fuel to the flame. So as we know that words are shaping perspective or at least are the manifestation of someone's perspective. So what words we use to describe people to describe phenomena, to describe action are important because we don't want to misrepresent our population. We don't want to continue to harm our population. We want to consider them as whole people, right? And to consider them as whole people, we need to make sure that our words reflect that meaning. So just to use the word minority, we have to question that. Does the population that we are researching, does the population that we are, um, want that to be associated with that term does that term make them feel human does that term make them feel respected does that term allow for the continual invisibleness and universality of white goodness right or white equaling the goodness those kind of associations and so to you know find a societal equity societal equity right then we really need to be clear in our language, to be focused on what we want to say, and to really pinpoint how we would say things. So in reflection number two, I want you to watch this YouTube video. I'm pretty sure this is in reflection number two, and which means I'm probably going to, you know, this is where a pause will happen after this one, because I think this is reflection number three. So in reflection number three, I want you to watch this YouTube clip. Um, and these are some things, you know, it's kind of like a shorthand that I think think is probably a teaching tool, like purposefully a teaching tool. Um, and the video talks about um, just the use of words and how particularly President Trump uh, put an article in front of the word black, an article in front of the word African-American or the words African-American and how that even though it's kind of a minor little um, inflection essentially in his language that still feels you know wrong as he speaks it and it's also probably the intent behind how he speaks it versus the words you know how they're put together in a neutral context but due to who he is as well as anyone who kind of emphasizes a the in it the the you know at least in this video, and I would say I kind of sort of connect to it as well, um, shows difference, right? Um, it shows non-connection, shows also you're not really respecting how the culture and the people and the political group themselves define themselves. So the video at the end says there are two things basically not to do. How, like, what do you think about these two actions? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Would you be, po be part of it? 
just a general reflection. And then and secondly, according to this video, what does Trump's language say about his perspective towards African-Americans? Like really deep, dig deep into it. Maybe you think it's neutral, you know, neutral. And that's fine too. If you think he's just like, this is just how he defines it and having the as an emphasis um, in talking about these groups is good. I can give, you know, some evidence for that. Who knows? But just really give me your opinion on those. So I was right. Reflection number four, which is the next one, I want you to think about the term you use to call people from the racial group black or the raced group that are named black. How does it feel to make how does it feel to call someone black, African American, Negro person of color, colored person, N I G G A and N I G G E R. And yes, go through each of them in turn and actually like go through your feelings and go through your thought process. Um, when you are thinking about these terms, do you just never do it at all? Do you do it sometimes? Do you feel you only do it when you're talking, you know, to your same racialized friends, same racial group friends? Or do you actually say this to the person? Do you say this during class? Like what do you use these terms for? As well as you might have some confusion about some terms. One of them that I'm going to point out explicitly is person of color and color person. So even when you get to those sections, you can talk about how are they different? Is it slight? Um, and it may just be, or I will tell you, it's definitely historical, right? And this slight change um, that has currently happened uh, is interesting. Um, why do you use the term that you personally use and maybe even give some background on to why or when you use that term, not why, but when you use that term? Is it for public? Is it just for your family? Is it just for your friends? Is it just for your teachers? What term do you personally use? Is it just in writing? Is it just in research? Um, think about that. And then lastly, would you consider asking someone what term they use to describe themselves as part of introductions? So like you go up to somebody and they are whatever racial group they say they are, would you consider just asking them straight out? And then how do you feel about doing this practice? You don't have to answer what I'm about to say next, but uh, do you think we should implement this practice? Should this be a norm in society? So we ask someone's name, we ask them their job, we ask them what, uh, you know, what level you are in college, and then should we ask them their race? Um, and I get that this is probably also in the same taboo area as not asking people their gender, but in certain circles, we're seeing that that has to start, or at least not necessarily straight out asking what gender are you, but definitely considering how they want to be called. What are your, perf what are your pronouns? And really being explicit about like, well, if they say their pronoun is fill in the blank, then I, as another person who is respectful of this other person, will use this pronoun, no matter what their presentation is, which also is affected by race, right? When I talked about passing and someone who phenotypically looks white or what we consider to be white, and if they say, well, I'm black, do you accept that? Um, and then call them that in context, of course. Um, is that proper? Is that respectful? Et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not going to focus on the readings as much as I've done in previous weeks because these were actually, or they should be pretty straightforward. The first reading is just kind of a basic history. The author is just going through 
uh, the different terms and how the different terms came into fashion and then went out of fashion depending on what they were and that's it and so it really should just be a basic history in order to give you you know a foundation for how these terms came to play what terms have been used and also really emphasizing the fluctuation of african-american terminology for their own identity and that it really was not just an external conversation a conversation coming from primarily white individuals but it definitely was an internal conversation of how the group felt about themselves felt about what they wanted to connect to and this connects to a lot of kind of like real historical things that were happening during certain time periods so he doesn't really address it but there's even an earlier time before uh the using the term negro that people were also once again calling themselves african and even before that um they were calling themselves by the groups in which they came from he probably does mention something along the lines of that in like a sentence or two but some of these things you know went out of fashion and have come back into fashion and it's all you know historical and connected and foundational um the second two is one is a personal opinion about what they want to be called and the second one is about external group and how white people or at least the white people that they uh, interviewed in so i'm just going to leave kind of an awkward cut between this one and the last one um because the program that i'm using to record these is on my phone so it's basically like i'm talking on the phone and my phone rang and when my phone rings it automatically cuts me off so it was kind of awkward and then anywhere in the previous cut that i had uh there was no like really good place to stop so i was just going to leave it as is and you know we'll just have an awkward cut this time and on lecture four we won't and we'll do good things then um so like on the readings i was saying they're okay they're not that dense or at least i hope they're not that dense and the third article is about what uh a group of people white people that they interviewed feel is the best term as well as uh how they perceived um each of the terms and so when they associated like a news article with african-american they had one version but when they associated or and then they had the term black and they associated different things with that and so it's kind of like an interesting article to give like an external um response to what to call a group as well as an internal what the group wants to call themselves and so kind of pairing those next to each other and so then the reflection number five i want you to this is a little bit less of a reflection and more kind of just like exam questions if there was an exam in this class but you know i really wanted you like to get at the two articles um and tell me how you felt about them and how like what is actually happening in the articles so what do you think about smith what do you think about smith using the term african-american and all that kind of stuff so I know I keep kind of coming back to this term during our class, um, but like I'm saying, like this is about how do we change our thought? How do we like really um, del- you know, dig deep into what a term means in our head? Why it becomes so natural for us to use it? Why it's natural for scholars to teach it a certain way? And so like really getting at the like nitty gritty of why these things are occurring, really trying to change you know, minds literally here. So what do you think of when you hear the term slave? Like S-L-A-V. 
And I know we did this in class and people rose their hand. So this is also for thinking. Don't do a reflection on this. This is for thinking. So you're sitting in your room, you're sitting on the phone, you're walking down the street, wherever you are. What do you think of when you hear the term slave and go through the different things in your mind? Um, yes, what you visualize, um, the racial person, the gender of that person, the uh, what they're wearing, things associated with them, the society that they live in, like consider all of that conversation, right? What do you think of when you hear the term slave? So yes, you may have other um, things for slave you may think of, uh, as your colleague was saying about the sex trade and how that has put people in a, in, you know, has put people in enslavement kind of a contemporary way. They're still different, like people being stolen from wherever they are, people being sold by family members to um, conditions in which are not good for them. So this is all true in a contemporary sense. Um, but a lot of times, and for I'm pretty sure a majority of you, when you thought of the term slave, you definitely thought of that kind of historic moment in world history um, of the transatlantic slave trade and the transportation of Africans by Europeans to um, the other side of the world, essentially, um, to work on fields or other kind of laboring industries for the benefit of mostly white planters um, and industrialists. So in this next slide, um, this is a quote by Sadia Hartman. And it's kind of like off, you know, it's kind of a digression kind of thought, but I liked how she uh, defines kind of the moment in a way in which slavery or a slave was born. Cause like we're saying, like all these terms, all these ideas, all these concepts, um, most of them at least have a moment. None of these things have been perpetually happening through time. Yes, there have been slavery in the past, like even before the 1400s, there have been slavery. Um, but our modern conception of enslavement is definitely influenced by this 14th to 19th century moment. And so she um, has written, because she her book, Lose Your Mother, is very interesting. Um, monograph, I don't know if I recommend it, but if you read like the first couple chapters, that will be good enough. Um, so the slave hold was buried deep in the earth. And so she's kind of connecting this idea of um, enslavement to the state, um, the state of death, as well as how it would feel for the people who were being stolen at the time, um, that they were put in the ground. And how did that feel? How did that connect to their sense of self at that time by being put in the ground, literally? But she's like actually looking at it from the perspective of even the British during that time, and that they, in putting people in the ground by taking them from their land and making them and transporting them against their will to another area, they were calling it a factory in a way. And so the question that can come up as an academic in your mind is what type of factory or what was being produced in this factory as well as what was, was being consumed because um, factory produces products for consumption. So what was being produced by this factory, by this process of putting people in the ground, putting people under ships or in the you know bottom parts of ships, shipping them across the way to their consumers. And she's saying in this whole process, basically they are producing slaves. 
And so in that word to the British, they produced a slave. They produced or they made a process. And this is Jennifer adding her own analysis to it. This They made a process of dehumanization. And what people consumed essentially was dehumanization. Not saying that the actual individual was a, you know, a non-human, not to say that, but how they were read, how they were marked by the process, by the factory process, made them be read by others, made them be bought and sold and commodified by others. Um, and that's an interesting kind of like transition um, that we today still kind of connect to. Like, what does it mean to be dehumanized and be dehumanized by workplaces, be dehumanized in this, you know, time period of enslavement as well? And how that process, how that kind of very um, capitalist process still lives on in people today. How people relate to everyone else, how we even not necessarily in a racialized context, but even in a uh, class or at least our ignorance of class um, context that we consider some people purposely be, be less than others. And we have processes to do that. So even when we think about incarceration and that there is this very like, well, some people need to be put in jail, but what does being put in jail do to someone? What processes do they go through? Because we often, well, the first thing, right, when someone is incarcerated is that they are taken away from their family, taken away from society, put in a building, whatever, in uh, place um, in which they are processed, literally. Um, they lose their clothes, they lose their possessions, they lose their a lot of things um, and are, you know, going through even more than that. And we're not going to belabor this point anymore, but you get where I'm going with it. There's these processes that create what we think to be a slave. There's these processes that create what we think to be a prisoner, a criminal. There's processes. So it's not always and will never be just one day you were human and one day you were not. We have to actually look at the processes and actually start to think about where a process can be stopped even. So when we think about this, you know, going back to what really this lesson is about, is about terms and terminology. So when you think about the term slave, which is a popular term, right? It's a popular term in how people teach about history. It's a popular term when people um, talk about it in media, talk about it in scholarship. People tend to use the word slave um, and it makes assumptions about the population. And I'm reading here, it makes being a slave a um, inherent condition. And so like you are a slave, it makes it an adjective of the self. You equal slave, right? It's not you have become a slave. It's not that someone has put slavery, a condition of slavery upon you, which when you talk about it in that way, using kind of these other um, languages, we're adding in that it happened to you by someone and that there is a party, you know, and usually it's an invisible party in the way we talk about someone was a slave. But instead, if we make it, we talk about enslavement or enslaving someone as the verb that we can add more people basically to be at fault here. 
So Europeans, particularly European planters, um, held slaves, right? So we're adding some conditions here. The other thing, um, and I'm saying here, it's similar to being convicted of a crime versus a criminal. And this might not be as um, subtle in your mind, but I think about these things. And so we assume negative things about criminals, like criminals are bad people, they're bad people, all in all, never could be good people ever again, because they are criminals, the end. However, when usually like having this language of no, 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 a human, you know, Jennifer was convicted of a crime, maybe how you treat me will be a little bit different because I was just convicted. Someone else put this upon me. It wasn't that I am inherently a criminal. It's not my identity that I'm a criminal. It's that I did a, something that in our current society, we have called a crime. And that for some changes how one is treated. Because if I'm convicted of a crime, you also could have doubt with that. He was like, did I do it? Versus Jennifer is a criminal, which obviously means I did it. And obviously it was fair that whatever punishment has occurred. You know, once again, this might be subtle, but these are different ways that we can think about it. And so my next question to you, and once again, this is something you can think about. You don't have to write it down. Is where's the humanity when you call someone a slave? Right. So thinking about it, not just as kind of a term out of context, like a slave, the, the end. But since we have visions of what that means, since we have a perception of what that means, then what's the humanity to that? Are we looking at it from all sides? Are we looking at it of how we would feel if we were in a condition of enslavement? Are we looking at other people who have maybe related to people who were enslaved? And do we consider what that means? Are we considering them as human? And what, you know, and I'm also taking very much liberties that we all have somewhat assumptions of what being considered human is and connecting it to the idea of human rights. So I know I'm making assumptions about that one, about how everyone in the class feels about that. But let me take that for granted and go back to the idea of where is the humanity when you call someone a slave? Even, you know, it being a very innocent experience in research and just saying, you know, trying to explain the moment of time. But do we want to even maintain that? Do we want to maintain that when we talk about Thomas Jefferson um, or Sally Hemings was a slave? Do we want to talk about it in that way? And do we want to keep maintain that? Or do we want to say that Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson held Sally Hemings in enslavement, you know? And should, which one should we write? And it's probably easier to be like Sally Hemings was a slave and move on with her life because that's less words. We need to do our word count. Or should we, you know, perpetuate some other more complicated conversations? So I'm going to hopefully go through the next few slides a little bit more quickly. You can read these ones. I put a lot of text here. So just remember that etymology, the study of these kind of histories and contexts and how words are used is a disciplinary project. African-American studies does this work consistently. Um, and even more broadly, and not just the words we use and how we use them, but thinking about 
very often in our work. Does the term, does the way the word is used in history and in the present, does it center African experiences, individuals, or groups? Do we give them power essentially in that moment? Do we explicitly um, understand the condition that they were in? Or does it continue their marginalization? Does it continue making them inferior? Does it continue making them objects of history instead of subjects of history? And I'm gonna repeat that one. Does it continue making them objects of history? Something that just happens to them? Or does it make them subjects of history as though they are equal and I know the kind of term is kind of the way I'm saying it is probably also weird at the moment, but what I'm trying to emphasize is the idea of are we telling the story from an African perspective? Are we talking about the history of African Americans from their position or are we focusing on the Europeans and how they acted towards African people? In my class, I want us to do African people being the subjects of history, African people being how we tell the story, whose position, whose worldview we tell the story from, or at least aiming towards that. We may not always get there. We may have to do some both work, um, but at least I would like us to put them in the story from their position. And going back once again to today's lesson with our words that we use. So in that, Jennifer, when I talk about the slave experience, I usually try to use enslaved Africans as my terminology and I slip up. So, you know, I'm not going to punish you or anything like that. There's no, there's no consequences if you slip up, but I will ask you to start to use the word enslaved Africans if that kind of, con term of the conversation ever comes up again in class instead of using slaves. Because like you're already kind of previously thought, when you think of slaves, there's definitely a lot of uh, dehumanization happening there. Because being enslaved was a dehumanized or dehumanizing practice. But instead, if we use enslaved Africans to kind of give those people a little bit more agency, we're adding some information that often isn't put there. We're adding their geographic location. It's very vague, and we probably could be a little bit more specific, but we're still adding some more information. We're also saying their condition isn't um, permanent, that it, you know, we're doing the verb there. It was enslaved, not that they are slaves, but they were enslaved. And by having that verb, we can add a little bit to that, that we can add the, um, the context or the implicit context of enslaved by who, right? That kind of... I hope begs the question here when we use enslaved. Um, it also does a lot of other things. <laughs> it, if we start talking about the story of the enslaved Africans instead of the slaves, then we also might want to hear some more. We don't want to just be like, well, they were slaves, the end, because what else can we say about them? Um, they were oppressed, like automatically, versus, well, what, what were they before? What were they after, you know? And this is, of course, maybe just um, my understanding of it, but I would hope that you'd be able to ask some more questions when we don't assume 
um, with enslaved Africans. It's also for you, I assume, a newer term. You may have heard this before, like once or twice, but as a newer term, you probably want to ask a little bit more questions than with a term that you've heard consistently and it's become normal, it's become tradition, right? And we maintain it. And so what about when we do something new? When we try to, you know, flip the script a little bit. So after all this talk about nomenclature, why is this um, stuff in introdu Introduction to African American Studies? And I emphasize, I bolded here, African American Studies, right? And this was something that your colleague asked on one of the earlier days of class, African American Studies, right? I never, or at least I hope I never emphasized to you that African American Studies, the discipline, how it's taught in universities, is only about people who live in the United States and have been, in, or their ancestors have been enslaved and they are racist black. I will hopefully never claim that that's the only group that we talk about. African American studies is often about anyone in the continent and the diaspora. Anyone, right? Um, so... The nomenclature of the discipline is just as varied as the nomenclature of the people. Originally in the 1960s, and we're going to learn about this later in the semester, it was originally termed Black Studies because during the 1960s, during the Black Power movement, Black Power was the term, or Black, sorry, Black was the term that people started to use in order to show a more radical or show a more uh, stronger, a more empowered version of themselves. So they were coming off of kind of Negro, coming off of colored and being like, we are black and we're going to use this political and historical term in order to define ourselves as a, you know, political or politicized people. And so black studies coming from that moment, uh, use the term black. As people, you know, came to use the discipline and came to be scholars in it, everyone was getting PhDs in it, the terms kind of changed. Um, it went from African-American for a while, people were still using black to a point. And eventually, if you look at current, particularly doctoral programs and um, undergrad programs, people kind of have these mixed terms. Um, one that I've been seeing coming to play often actually is African and African diaspora studies. Diaspora um, basically means dispersal. So people who have moved either involuntary or voluntarily from the African continent to other places in the world. So African and African diaspora studies seems to be on the rise. Um, but black studies still exist in some places. African-American studies exist in a lot of places. And then there's Africana studies so Africana studies um, also has popularity and that's just being kind of a term that encompasses, that encompasses everything. So instead of saying African and African diaspora, we just say Africana as having the content, the context of meaning everything relating to an African or an African descendant experience. So the last reflection I have for you after all of that, and um, 
I actually thought before I did this, this would be a shorter lesson because I didn't have as many slides, but I think I went on a little bit too many tangents this time. But in reflection number six, I want to ask you, what practices would you have to do to change the terms that you have used for a long time? And actually think about some other terms. I'm giving you slave versus enslaved, but what about gender terms? Like if someone purposely comes to you and um, says they want to be called they, what do you have to do to change your practices? Um, to actually cognitively, cognit, ugh, I can't say that word today, but how do you think differently? Um, I get that some of it may just basically be practice, but do you do anything else to get to a different um, way of thinking? And it's kind of going to a more general way, like how do you add new knowledge and how do you apply new knowledge um, when it comes to you? And how do you linguistically, how do you use your language to show your new knowledge? And some of it just could be explanation, but how do you adopt new terms? So even things that like in technology, we've made new technological terms all the time. Um, texting. I mean, this is clearly not your lifetime. It's probably my lifetime. But if someone tomorrow says, you know, we're going to add a new term for whatever this thing is, Snapchatting, that's probably a word too. But you know, those kind of things. How do you start to add them? And then I think I'm going to write this down. It's not currently on my slide. But how do you uh, feel about adopting new terms? Because I feel like some terms are more easily adopted than others. Like, and it feels like those more, those typical social constructs, gender, race, class, when someone wants to switch them up a little bit, we get a little nervous. So I'm going to ask that question too. All right. See you next lecture.